Yeah, thanks to uh, the volunteers and everyone that makes this happen. Volunteers, uh, it's not just what happens in our in our services, but there's a there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. I know that uh, uh, a lot of a lot of work goes into city groups, and so we want to celebrate the city group leaders and all those who serve, and again make make everything that uh, Urban Grace is possible. Uh, we're in a series at, uh, called Covenant, as Matt had said, and my name is Trev. I'm happy to bring the word to you tonight. Uh, I'm also, I, I, I want to make this fairly common, but I'm also a recipient of that unlikely grace. And uh, I'm just standing here being the one that's, that's delivering the word, but I do actually believe this word is for all of us, myself included. So if you'll turn in the word to Joshua chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, would you just raise your hand and, and someone will, will bring a Bible to you and, and go ahead and keep that Bible if you need to. Uh, I'm not going to be able to read through uh, the scripture because it's, uh, I'll explain it um, kind of in short form and, and apply it as we go along because there's three chapters. And, and I, I just want to say just for time's sake, it's not because there's not important things in there, but but chapter three is is kind of like camera one and chapter to, uh, four is like camera two, and so there's there's some uh, overlap there, and really uh, it's the same story, but it has some different details. And then chapter five really is is supposed to be kind of crushed into that. Um, what happens sometimes as the Bible develops over time is that they put chapters in and really kind of uh, tie us into chapters. But the way it first came out, that might have been um, its separate chunk of scripture, and that's why we do that. Um, but as you're as you're turning there, um, I want to ask you this question. How do you remember things? How do you remember things? Anyone have trouble remembering things? Anyone have an alarm on their phone that helps them remember things, right? You put things, who puts things in their phone calendar and the alarm goes off? I have this appointment coming up. Um, who really only would remember someone's birthday if it was for what? if it was not for Facebook. Anyone remember anyone's birthday without Facebook? Right, some of you are not telling the truth on that. I know that. Uh, I have got more birthday wishes from Facebook in the last three years than I've gotten my entire life. Uh, people that do not really care about me, but they want me to wish them a happy birthday when their thing comes up. Uh, unfortunately, I don't pay that close attention to Facebook, so I'm sorry if I've Facebook uh, not snubbed you or whatever it is. Um, on your birthday. It's not because I don't like you. It's just because I don't check. But remembering is such an important part of our life. And let me, uh, let me just say that as a Christian, if you are a Christian, remembering is a, a big part. If you're not a Christian, remembering is a big part of the Christian life. Lots of the Christian life can be boiled down into simply remembering who we are in Jesus Christ, what we believe, what God has done in our life, what God has done in the past of other people's lives, what God has done throughout history. In fact, you could boil a lot of what we do as a church family and as Christians down to uh, remembering of sorts. On my phone, I actually have an alarm that every day at 10.02, it reminds me to pray for more church planters in the city. I'm a big fan of church planters. I am a church planter, and so I have a, a little affinity towards church planters. And uh, it's at 10.02 because that corresponds with Luke chapter 10, verse 2, uh, which is actually a passage about praying not for the harvest, not for people 
out there who need Jesus, but people to work at reaching people for Jesus. And Jesus actually instructed us not to pray for the harvest. He instructed us to pray for workers for the harvest. And so, uh, as Matt said, um, we are excited that we have lots of volunteers, but we always need more. We always need more workers. We always need more missionaries because God's glory is, is, is so big and so rich. And there are so many people that need Jesus that it will take um, lifetimes for us to do this. So I'm reminded every day at 10.02 now, I want to pray that way, but it's funny how if I didn't have that alarm, I would never pray every day. There's no way. So I, I could say, I pray every day for church planters, but that's only because I have a reminder. In fact, sometimes I don't even think about it. I swipe it, and, I, and then later I go, did I, did I pray for church planters today? Do I, I don't remember if I did or not, I think. And even then, I need another reminder of my reminder. Today's passages are really all about God instructing his people to remember, to remember, to remember, 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 remember. That's because I think as, as the story of God goes along, people get into trouble, people sin, people turn from God as a direct result of the fact that they forgot about what God was like. They forgot who God was. They forgot what he asked them to do. They forgot of who they, who, the kind of God that they believed in. And so these three chapters lay it out for us. I've really got to do some, uh, some context work here for you. Uh, because some of you are new and some of you are not aware of where we are in the series. Again, as Matt said, we call it Covenant. Yes, we did preach about Rahab. Even I forgot that, so you're all excused if you forget. See? Good, good illustration right there in the sermon. Forgetful. But the, the series is called Covenant because the book of Joshua is really about the fulfilling of a particular part of a covenant. Covenant is a word that we use uh, for formalized promise. And so you can make a promise to someone, you can say, I promise I'll call you back, I promise to do this thing, but if you covenant with someone, that's something a little more formal. You don't promise to marry someone, you covenant to marry someone. And a covenant has a special, special um, angle to it in that a covenant really is about, I will do this regardless of what you do. A promise is, or a contract is, I do this as long as you do this. I play football as long as you pay me. I come into work every day as long as I get a paycheck. I'll be your friend as long as you like me on Facebook. That's a contract. A covenant is, I will do this regardless of what you do for me. And God actually gave a covenant promise to a man by the name of Abraham very early in the Bible story in Genesis chapter 12, uh, we find that God gives to Abraham a promise that says, first of all, I will build and develop a family in you, which is, was at the time a strange promise since Abraham actually had no kids at the time, but he said he would make an enormous family through him. He also said to Abraham, I will, I will bring you into the land that I will show you. It's kind of a real vague promise, like one of those promises that, Abraham didn't really know how this was going to be fulfilled. And he said, Abraham, I want you to get on your horse. I want you to, to, to get out of town. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you as you go. Thanks a lot, God, right? You're thinking that kind of promise doesn't have any 
clarity to it. But Abraham believes God at his word, and he, he goes and he follows. And, and he goes, and, and, and the, the storyline of the first five books of the Bible are about how God develops Abraham's family. He does, in fact, bless him with a child in a very miraculous way. And, and he brings along a lot of different leaders. He puts them in a place called Egypt, and he grows his people. And so Abraham begins to develop this large family of people um, but he still doesn't have the land part. And, and, and Abraham dies, passes the leadership bat- baton on to a man named Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. That's where we get the name for Israel as a people, as a nation. And then Israel dies and passes the uh, leadership baton on to um, essentially Moses. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses takes the people through, in, and out of Egypt. And this process from when Abraham receives his covenant promise from God and when we are in the book of Joshua is approximately 430 years. And we go from zero people in Abraham's time to we think, Matt and I tried to figure it out, um, it's hard to do the math at times, but approximately 3 million people. So God has been fulfilling his promise for 430 years, 3 million people, and they're literally standing on the banks of the river. They're going to... They're, they're looking at the land. I want to show you exactly what they're looking at. If you can see with me the, the, um, excuse me, the, the map here. Let's see here. There we go. Isn't that a beautiful map? Nice and spread out wide for you. Um, if you look at the bottom there, you see the Dead Sea. That's the, big, uh, that's the big water at the bottom. And then the top is the Sea of Galilee. And if you strain your eyes you can see that there's a, there's a river line in between those two. That river is the Jordan River. And so, so far, God has been working with his people, and he's actually worked east of the river. And so all of that stuff now really belongs to uh, Israel. Uh, as they've gone along, God has miraculously led them that far. Uh, they actually start on a place you can barely see it there. It's called Shittim. Um, yes, I'm saying that right. Sorry about my language, but that's the name uh, in the text. Uh, when you see in chapter 3 there, that's actually where we start. And they're kind of in that area. They're on the edge of the banks of the Jordan River. They're looking across to what would be west of that river. And that will one day be the land. That's the land that are promised. How do they know this? Well, Moses is promised that this is the land. And then Moses passes that baton of leadership on to Joshua. And the reason why we know that is because God will miraculously show us and show the people of God that they are connected to this promise. And so let me take you through this story. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they, sh- they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. And so they camp on the bank of, of the river Jordan and they're looking across to the land. Now remember, three million people And so God being the miraculous God that he is, he chooses a really awkward time for the people to cross. The Jordan River is most of the time three to ten feet deep. At this particular time in the season, that Jordan River is 18 to 20 feet deep. So remember, are you guys aware of the Bow River? Just about, you know, a couple of feet on this side. Uh, There's a big difference between wading in that river in late August and wading that river in the early June or mid-June. Those are two different rivers. 
uh, one, especially if it's flooding season, as it was last year, uh, there's, there's, there's no way you could really cross that thing safely. And actually, God chooses that particular time of harvest when the river is swollen, when it's probably 18 to 20 feet deep. And he says, actually, this is the time that I want you to cross this, miracul- uh, cross this river miraculously. You're not going to do it by building a raft. You're not going to do it by building boats. You're not going to do it by holding hands and, you know, kind of Red Rover style and crossing the river. You're going to carry my ark. You're going to stand in the river and it's going to part for you. Anyone slightly confused by that yet seems like strange tactics doesn't it for god to do really hold the ark of the covenant in the middle of the river and as we walk into the river then god will miraculously spread the river for us doesn't seem like a very good tactic let me explain a little bit about uh, what what we're looking at here in terms of the ark Um, If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is kind of what it looks like. Uh, The Ark is a very special piece of property. It's very symbolic. uh, It means a lot to anyone who's part of Israel's family. Um, Here's what it means. It means the holy presence of God. And so unlike us, where we actually have Jesus, we have been given His Spirit to live right with inside us. They didn't have those kinds of things. God resided basically everywhere else but in their hearts. And he chose to reside in this ark. He chose to manifest himself in the presence of the ark. And it was so holy, it was so separate, that even if you touched it inappropriately, you'd die. In fact, there's a story in the Bible about uh, one man who, as the ark is being carried, and a couple of people that are carrying the ark, they slip, and, and it looks like the ark is going to fall onto the ground. And he puts his hand up. Uh, to hold the ark back, and he dies instantly the moment he touches it. That's how holy. You say, that seems like an unfair God. Well, I would say, I, I, no argument there. It seems unfortunate uh, for the guy. Uh, actually, as you think about it, kind of a good way to go, by the way. How'd you die? Hey, touch the ark of God, did you? You know, it's a good way to go. Anyways, uh, rabbit trail. But he, uh, he, he dies on contact because of the holy, awesome presence of God. Inside the ark are, are some very important things. Um, the, the, the priests are told to sanctify themselves. That means they go through this, the special washings. They, they go through special times and, 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 and they do special things in order to be able to even hold the ark. And then they hold it by those poles. They can't actually touch it. They actually have to get like new poles uh, that, are, that have never been kind of used for anything else. And, and they, they stick them through those little holes and they carry the ark. And as the priests go into the, to, to the river, um, here's what the ark symbolizes for them. Inside of the ark are three special items. First of all, there's the tablets of God. Those are the Ten Commandments. Those are the pieces of stone that Moses was given when he went up on the mountain to talk to God. He's the only one basically to see or even come close to God. Uh, he didn't see God, but he came as close as basically any human had come at that point. And God gave him ten words, ten commandments, the law, the word of God. God spoke to him. I love this about our God. All the other gods of the time were, were gods that couldn't speak. They couldn't say anything. But, but this God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he spoke and he gave these ten words to his people. And so to symbolize that God's word would go before them, they put these ten 
commandments inside of the ark. They also put the, the rod of Aaron. Aaron was the very first priest that there ever was. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. A priest is someone who is, is a mediator between two parties. So if this party here is mad at this party, you have a mediator in between. And a priest is a mediator between God, a holy God, and sinful man. And Aaron's rod symbolized the raw power of God. This, this staff was used not just to like, not, it wasn't like a cool walking stick. Uh, God's power was manifested through this. He would hit rocks and water would come out. It was really miraculous. And some of us like to get our eyes on this kind of uh, walking stick, I'm sure. That was inside of the ark. As well, inside the ark was a jar of manna. And, and manna symbolized the provision of God. Because when the people of God were developing and growing into literally millions of people, uh, they were out in a desert without any way of providing themselves. They were not yet agriculture. They had no way of providing for themselves. And for 40 years, God provided bread on the ground every single morning. They would wake up. That's actually what the word manna means. Manna means literally, what is it? That's how you translate the word manna. It's on the ground, it tastes like bread, and it was there, it, it, it rotted every day if you didn't pick it up. And so it, the, the manna inside of the ark symbolized the provision of God. So think about this for a second. As the ark goes into the water and it's going to part for a second, God says, keep the ark like 0.8 of a kilometer in the distance so everyone can see this and everyone can see that the power of God goes, the word of God goes before us, the provision of God goes before us. What's the text trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us that Israel will not move into the land without God going first. Israel does not go in when they want. They go in when God says they go. In, Israel doesn't go how they want. I'm sure some of them like, doesn't seem like a great way to go across a river to like get the ark into the river, possibly spill it. It could go under. We don't know. There was faith involved, definitely. And Joshua said, this is the, what God says. This is what we're going to do. And so really that's, that's chapters three and four. And as they go into the river, what actually happens is the river stops. It parts. Now again, some of us are scientific and say, you don't really believe that, Trev. Yes, I do, because that's written in exactly the same way the rest of the book is written. So we have no reason not to believe that these people did not actually experience this. There actually, one commentator said, well, it's actually possible because the river is swollen at that time, um, and obviously that's because it's rainy season, uh, it's very possible there was a giant mudslide making it possible for this to naturally stop. And some of you might say in your head, oh, oh, so you're saying this is a big miracle, but actually it's, a natu it's by natural causes. And I would tell you, it's a miracle that some of you made it to church tonight, much less three million people cross a river a giant mudslide that stops a 20-foot deep river for 20 hours while you cross it at the exact time that you walk into it with the ark? I mean, that's a miracle in itself, right? I think it's a miracle just to have 3 million people cross a river bed, a river bed, an empty river bed. I mean, again, some of us, 
um, you know, in our family, it's, it's a miracle when two kids make it to church on time without food on their face. It's a miracle that f- some of us get to school on time, it seems. So to simply push this away and say, well, it's not really that big of a miracle is not really paying very close attention to what's going on here. That being said, there's something else going on. Because when Moses led his people, led the people out of Egypt, what happened to them? They actually came up to the Red Sea, you saw it there, uh, and they walked, uh, they, they walked on the edge of the Red Sea, and as they walked through, it parted as well. And that was a miraculous thing that they saw, some of them saw, some of them are 40 years and older, so they experienced this personally. They saw it, they at least heard this story. And so what this does actually is it connects the people presently and what they're doing right now to something that happened 40 years ago. So this isn't just an isolated incident for them. This has enormous implications on on their faith and how they understood going to battle. We will deal with that, I believe, next week when we talk about the fall of Jericho. We're going to talk about battle. We're going to talk about the, the morality behind that, what God was thinking when he did that. Um, So again, I don't want to deal with that tonight. We're not going to. We'll deal with that next week. But I do want to say it is amazing as these people sit on the bank of the Jordan River that it takes five chapters before they really do anything. And the reason why is because God says, you're not doing this. This is not based upon your great military strategy. This is not based upon what you think you can do to all these countries this is not based upon your vengeance or your hatred of these other countries this is based upon me and what i'm going to do for you and i want to symbolically show you what's actually happening here i am going before you my word is going before you my power is going before you my provision is going before you and then as they cross what does he ask them to do He says, take 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how they divided everything up. You see that? I I guess I can go back to the map here for one second and and just show you that that as they they develop, come on here, as they develop, we'll do that another day. Oh, there it was. Oh, oh, oh. Come on, Wi-Fi. All right. Slow. But as they develop, Whatever. Matt, you can change it for me. <laughs> as they develop as a, as a nation and, and, and as they kind of divide up, they divide on the basis of 12 tribes, which come from the 12 brothers, which come from the 12 sons of Israel, also known as Jacob. And so literally the representation of what God is doing, and he's, he's, he's divided these people up to take 12 stones and make a big pile on the other side of the river. Now again, imagine three million people sitting in the bank of the river all staring at 12 stones. Super brilliant military strategy, right? I mean, you can't hide three million people. So Canaan, the, 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 the opposition, they see this. They see what's going on. They see these people gathering around their stones. They're like, uh-oh, these people mean business. They're not actually that scared of us. They're content to build 12 stones. Why did God want to do that? Why did God want to put 12 stones? Because he wanted, every time they saw that pile of stones, they wanted to remember, today was the day that God went ahead of us. None of our victories are from us. They're from God. 
Every time their kids were like, what the heck is that? That's what Eve would say, my five-year-old. What the heck? What the heck is that pile of stones doing? My translation, my paraphrase. People, what, what is going on there with these 12 stones? And the moms and the dads would say, this, this is a reminder of what God is like. And he goes before us, that his word is ahead of us, that his power is ahead of us, that his provision is ahead of us. And so they cross the river. Now, this has, I think, a lot of implications for us. I'll get into them, and then I'll talk about the second one, uh, or the fifth chapter there. But I think the first thing that we can gather in, in, in applying this to us is that this is... This text is about remembering the present. It's about remembering what God has done in their lives right here, right now. And, and some of you might even be asking questions like, well, it'd be awful nice if God did this kind of a miracle in my life, like sp- spread the water. Maybe it's, maybe it's for you not spreading the water. Maybe for you it's, it's bringing a relationship back that, that is broken. Maybe for you it's... it's it's even more enormous. But I would say, God didn't work like this all the time in their lives either. So if we get into this comparison game about um, how God worked miraculously with them, but not with us, I think, I think we're missing what we're trying to learn here. What we're trying to see and apply is the fact that, that this is about a disciplined remembrance. God is teaching His people that to remember what he has done is very important to him and is very important to them. For us, that means we remember week after week what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have a cross here, an empty cross, not because we need more things on the stage, but because we want to remember that we are about Jesus. We're about what Jesus has done for us. We're about what Jesus will do in us. We're about what Jesus will do through us. We're about Jesus. We're about, we we would say we're about the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. Here's what the good news of Jesus is. It is that Jesus Christ was God who became man to bridge the gap between God and man so that we could uh, avoid a hopeless life, a fruitless life, so we could could experience uh, joy in Him, so that we could have new identity. We didn't have to put our identity in things that were worthless or useless or that would die one day or would fade away. It was so that we could experience Him actually forever. I love that. Amen. We need to remember that because so much of our sin, so much of our disobedience, so much of our frustration, so much of our hopelessness is because we have forgotten how much Jesus really loves us. We forget that God could have waited for us to come to Him and He would have waited for forever and we still wouldn't have come to Him because we would have all chosen our own way. But He didn't do that. He came to us. He lived among us as a person. He was God who became a man, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died to give us what we could not earn, which is ultimately salvation. Friends, most of our discouragement, if not all of our discouragement, is always tied into the fact that we forget that. 
Perhaps it's the first time you've heard it here even tonight, and I would say it's one of the reasons why we ask you to keep coming back because we want you to remember it over and over and over again. So let me get into some of the applications for that. As I said, first of all, we remember the gospel. One of the reasons why we design this, this service is really this is mostly about remembering the gospel. Most of the time, we just need to hear it being preached to us, being spoken to us. How many of you love it when you hear encouraging words and you just can't hear them enough? So if someone says they love you or they think you did a great job and that only lasts for a couple days and then the next over two days, you need someone to say it again in order for you to feel that again. And I think the gospel's like that. We need to hear it. You need to hear it preached to you because it is news. You need to hear that Jesus loves you. He's paid for your sin. You don't need to live with your guilt. You can be free. You don't have to be depressed. You don't have to live hopelessly. You can live with hope. I need to hear it, even though I'm the preacher. It's amazing how many times that what's going on in my life and I have to actually preach through is something that I need to hear, probably even more than you. I always say that this preaching deal is, is kind of like, it, this is God's word to me and he asks you to listen in on it. Because I need that. I come from a family of girls who love to hear how much I love them. They never get tired of it. My good wife, she always, said, she, she always says, tell me you love me. I said, why? I told you I loved you five minutes ago. She said, I can't hear it enough. You could say it over and over and over and over again. And what we do when we tell you about the gospel is we're telling you that Jesus loves you in spite of what you've done, in spite of who you are, in spite of where you've been, in spite of how big you think your problems are, in spite of how far from God you feel, in spite of all of the bad things you've done and all the great things you've done. He loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And his way of proving it is that he was willing to die on a cross for you. And so we need to hear that over and over again. So we invite you to come back week after week, not because we're trying to get more attendance at Urban Grace, but because we want you to hear that Jesus loves you. If you can find another church that does that, we would say go for it. We're not here to just build a bigger church. We're just part of Jesus' project in Calgary called Telling People Jesus Loves Them. That's what we're about. I want to connect this as well to our small. If you think our small is just kind of like we, 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 we think that that's a good program, we actually don't. It's really difficult. Anyone involved in a community group or a city group and you find it not easy, especially if you lead, it's not convenient. Anyone go, oh, man, it's really convenient for me to stop everything I'm doing once a week and, and gather with people. And it's very, very convenient to do the potluck thing and, and come home from work. And, you know, it's so convenient to stay late and talk about my personal problems. And oh, it's, this is really easy. No, it's not easy. But why do we ask that you do it? Because you need community. Why do you need community? Because it reminds you of something you forgot, which is you think you're the center of the universe. And by gathering in community, doesn't it have this funny way of ripping the selfishness out of you? You just realize, truthfully, I don't really want to be here. I think I'm better than this. 
I think that's my experience actually a lot of the time. That's a, that's a simple confession. I, I was going to say some of my city groups here, so don't take this personally, but there are many, many, many Thursdays where I'm like, man, I'm really tired. You know what I think I need? Stuff for me. I would love to just sit down and watch Thursday night football, especially when the Seahawks are playing. That's what I would like to do. But because that's when my group meets, it has this unique way of ripping the selfishness out of me. And every single Thursday, every single one, I cannot remember a Thursday where I walked away and went, that was a total waste of time. Every single Thursday I say, I need community. I am not the center of my universe. I have problems. I need Jesus. And I'm with a group of people who need Jesus too. So we would, this is why we're, we're pushing city groups, not because we want to make life impossible for you, but because we know that you're like us, that you need reminders. This is why I push people when they, when they, when they pull away from city groups. I said, this is a struggle. I know, I get it. It's tough, it's ugly, it's messy, it's difficult, it's inconvenient, it costs money, it takes away your social life, all of these things. I know, I know, I know. But what it does do, it does remind you of the goodness of God. This is what we're trying to do as we move forward. Uh, This is something churches are notoriously poor at, which is church family celebrations. I mean, we don't celebrate enough what God has done in our community. We try and say it a little bit. It's one of the reasons why I want to do a volunteer party. I want to say, look what Jesus has done. I mean, if you're brand new to Urban Grace, we started with six people in my father-in-law's basement. That's how this church started. Now we have two services. Now we have six city groups. We have people, we have almost 110 people meeting in community all over the city every week. I mean, it's just good sometimes to go, isn't God good? Look what he's done here. Look what Jesus has done. He's pulled a pretty motley crew together. Like, I don't know if you've looked around a lot. We don't really belong together other than we, we are here for Jesus. Some of you wouldn't even hang out with anyone in this church if it wasn't for Jesus. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's to say, Jesus is good. And we need to celebrate that. And every year now, at the anniversary when we started this church, we have a little anniversary celebration. You're You're not in a very good relationship if you don't have an anniversary, right? And if you forget it, you're dead meat. Right? Just just FYI for you guys. Right? Don't forget anniversaries ever. It's not wise. Amen? I got to hear some ladies say amen there. <laughs> but why do we do it? Spend extra money? Well, kind of. Have a big party? Yeah, kind of. Mostly? We just want to celebrate the grace of Jesus this past year. We just want to remember what he's done in the past year. We want to remember what, you know, what even this thing started with. I would say here's some personal applications for you. That this, this text calls us to remember. I think a great way to remember is to read Christian biography. I think I put up there living and dead. Some of you just need to track down people who have followed Jesus longer than you have and ask them questions about how do I keep following Jesus? 
I mean, we're a fairly young church, and there's some fairly new Christians here, and that's great. But sometimes it's just nice to know there are people in our church who have followed Jesus for longer than two weeks. It's just helpful. It's encouraging. As we were starting out, I remember very clearly a couple of the young guys going, can we get some older dudes in here who actually have lived their life a bit and kind of know what they're doing? I was like, first of all, I won't take offense to that. But second of all, yes. Yes, we need people. That's why we always, you know, right now I think I'm praying in this particular season as we grow a service and we have, I mean, we've got a great church, but, but we have some really messy lives amongst us. I'm not saying that negatively. I'm saying that it, this is what Jesus is doing. We have messy lives because people are being real. And so it's good, but it's messy. And we need people who have walked with Jesus for a while. And so look around. When you see someone who it appears like they've walked with Jesus, ask them out for coffee. Ask them questions. Ask them, ask them like, what do you remember about as you grow up? What are some of the difficulties that you faced? I think this is actually what kind of happened this past weekend with the ladies, is that the ladies shared stories about what Jesus did, and they were just asked to, to remind everyone of the grace of Jesus in their life. And it sounded great. I mean, you had me at food, but it sounded great. I mean, we want to do the same thing for guys. Guys, start growing your beards and get ready for lots of steak because we want to we do this right. But what, what are we going to do? We're just going to remember. It's going to remember the grace of God. If you can't find anyone living, find someone dead. There's lots of good Christian biographies of people that have been really faithful. Sometimes finding, reading dead people is the best thing because there's no rebuttal there, right? There's no scandal awaiting. And, and this is one of the ways I encourage myself. The Bible essentially is a really, really old biography of what Jesus has done in people's lives. And so if you want to remember the grace of Jesus, read Christian biography. And I would say this, journal. So you personally have a record of what Jesus is doing in your life. This right here is a journal Bible. I'll explain it for you. It's a Bible with a journal in it. It's got columns on either side. I love it. And what I do is as I read through the Bible, I just make notes on what's going on in my life. My hope was one day that my kids uh, would read through and see that dad actually knew Jesus and what was going on in his life. I try to leave out anything that would incriminate me really badly at a very inopportune time. But ultimately, I'm recording what Jesus is doing in my life at this time. I record dates and different things. And guess what it's useful for? Me. I see what Jesus is doing in my own life. I also, I, I, I journal, I bought a, a, a really journal. I'm kind of an old soul, so I bought a journal that I like to write in, so that I like to write. I mean, if you're going to journal, I would say get something that you really like to write in so you write stuff down. I bought an old leather journal. I kind of pretend I'm like Lewis and Clark, and, you know, I'm, I write in a fountain pen and everything, and I've got coffee stains in it. And it sounds quirky, but I like to write in it. I've only missed two days since the 1st of August. And what I'm doing is I'm recording. 
That's not the first journal I've had, but I'm recording what Jesus is doing in my life so that I can go back and when I'm discouraged and I'm frustrated, just like Israel was like, oh, God's word went ahead of us here. Oh, God's provision went ahead of us here. Oh, God's power was here. I can look back in my journal and say, God's power was in my life there. God's provision was in my life there. God's word was impactful here. I write down what I'm reading in Scripture. I'm writing down the questions I have about Scripture. I'm writing down my frustrations. You're not going to read it, but some of you are in there because I'm frustrated at times with some of you, and I'm happy at times with some of you. I'm a real person. That really happens. And I want to see in my own journal, here's when I was frustrated with this person, and two years later, they're my best friend. What the heck happened there? The grace of Jesus, that's what happened. I repented of my sin. I came clean on things. I reconciled that relationship. I was just impatient, really. It wasn't them, it was me. That's why I do that. Those are some ways I think we can remember the present, but I, I think that's, that's not all. I think this text is about remembering the past. Some of that seems like it's remembering the past, but that, that's just kind of... The reason why I say that is in chapter 5, what happens with Joshua is he basically says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're on the bank of the river. We're ready to go to battle. There's three million of us, and you guys want to fight and take the land, right? So the first thing's first. All those who are not circumcised get circumcised. I mean, that sounds like normal battle, doesn't it? Right? Normal military tactics, Right? You ready for battle? Drop your pants. I mean, it seems so strange and so foreign to us unless you know the fact that this mark of circumcision was really, had some deep spiritual significance. There were a lot of countries that actually performed circumcisions, but only Israel did it for spiritual reasons. I mean, in my mind, I'm like, that's one of the only reasons you would do it, especially as a grown person. It seems like such an odd, strange, archaic thing seems almost violent. And this is a day and an age that it actually says that they use flint knives, so we're, we're before bronze and steel. So this is not a comfortable situation. It's not even comfortable for me to preach this right now, to be honest. Some of you are like, I, I can't believe he's saying that. I know, it's in, the, it's in the Bible. Why? Because the covenant emphasized people that believed God at his word. God said, if you believe I am who I say I am, if you believe in my word, if you believe in my provision, if you believe in all of these things, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prove it. I'm testing it. I want you to prove it by being circumcised. Only men were allowed to be circumcised. This, there wasn't female circumcision. This was self-inflicted. This wasn't inflicted on people. And essentially what it did, if you, if you can just take a moment and, and, and not laugh about this, but it was literally, it was, it was trying to symbolically say, we're cutting off our old way to new life. We're cutting off our flesh and we're believing God at his word. And, and literally there's, there's nothing in life that they would not be reminded of that. I mean, again, it seems like such a strange thing to do. But what it did was it called the people to take God as word or decide their own word. 
Then Joshua said, now that that's done, and, and, and literally, again, this was a total act of faith because to put this kind of operation in on, uh, we don't know how many were circumcised, but we know that a, a, a large majority of them had to be circumcised because anyone 40 and under basically hadn't been because that was the time that, that, that Moses um, and they had kind of wandered in the desert. And so these people are healing. I mean, that's what you do when you get circumcised. Not much to do, but just sit there and heal. And they're healing, they're waiting, they're talking about God's word as Canaan is watching. And they're probably wondering, what in the world is going on with these people? And here's what was going on. God was doing stuff in the people before he did stuff through the people. That's still true for us today. That sometimes as we talk about being a good missionary, as we talk about doing good things for God, as we talk about faith and works, as we talk about sharing our faith, as we talk about being brave, sometimes we forget that actually God is more concerned about what goes inside your heart than he is in what he's going to do through you. He can do he can do anything he wants. Actually says if he wants to make the stones make be good preachers, he could do that, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to use you, but first of all, he wants to work in you. And so what he's doing in these people is he's developing faith in them, faith and trust in who he is. And then Joshua says, "Okay, now that that's done, we're going to celebrate the Passover." Now again, some of this may be strange to you. But the Passover is simply this. Passover was an annual celebration whereby um, they remembered something that happened in Egypt. So if you backtrack with me back to the, the leader Moses, as Moses is taking the people out of Egypt, the last straw before the, the Pharaoh of Egypt lets, essentially lets the people go is, he, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a plague on and I'm going to show you how much I love my people and how much I want my people to trust me at my word. And so he, the last plague is he's promising to kill the firstborn as a way to get Pharaoh's attention. In that day and age, there is really nothing that could have gotten attention. Some scholars would even say that, that God was, was kind of picking off all of the, the idols that the Egyptians were, were serving and the idols of the people that they were worshiping and the things that were most important to them, more, more, more important than anything else in the world. And what was that? It was family. It was the firstborn. In that day and age, in that culture, the firstborn received all of the stuff. All of the praise received, I think, double portion of whatever land was inherited. They were, they were the feature kid, so to speak. And God said, I'm killing in every family the firstborn unless, unless you take a lamb and you kill a lamb instead. Someone's going to die tonight. It's either going to be your firstborn or it's going to be a lamb. And if you trust me, take that lamb, kill it, take its blood and, and put it on the doorposts. And literally, symbolically, what, what is happening and in reality was when the Spirit of God came over, when the Spirit, when the Spirit of God came over to, to discipline His people and all people, all those who had the blood of the Lamb on their door were saved. 
I, again, like really that, that was an annual celebration? Yeah, actually as the Lord passed over people, that's where you get the name Passover. And interestingly enough, by the time we get to the New Testament, we actually don't have circumcision required as an act of faith. Anyone happy about that? Amen. It's a good thing. We actually have what corresponds to that, which is baptism. I, I'm glad this is, in some ways, this is much, much clearer, cleaner, and easier. Because the Bible actually said there's really not anymore a circumcision of the flesh. There's now just a circumcision of the heart, which is the cutting away of the way you live your life for yourself and now living for God. I'll see if I have it on, on Scripture here. It says, In him also were you circumcised, that is, you who believe in Jesus, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And so what the scripture is doing there is it's corresponding this, this ancient rite of circumcision with now baptism. That's why we baptize people. That's why we still have a tub. We filled it up again in case there is someone here today who says, I will publicly declare, I'm not getting circumcised, but I'm going to publicly declare that I believe in Jesus. I believe he is who he says he is. I believe his word. I believe he is my savior. I believe I'm a sinner in need of that savior. And I believe that he is that savior. And this morning we had a man who basically said, that's what I believe. And so we said, then we baptize you, which, which really symbolically what we're doing here is it's kind of shaped like a coffin, isn't it? It's almost cryptic a little bit. It's like a coffin. But in some ways, it's, it's, it's kind of symbolically saying we, he dies to his old way and he rises up to a new way. Because what happens spiritually to us is that we die to our old selves and we rise again with a new heart and a new self. We don't believe that this actually happens while you get baptized. We wouldn't go that far. But we would say, if this has happened in your life, then what the Bible says is declare that publicly. We do it right here in our church because we want as many people to be involved. We don't believe that, that declaring this trust and faith in Jesus is something that's just individual and something you do on your own time in your own way. We believe it's something that, that not just connects you to Jesus, but the family of Jesus, which is us locally. So we actually have, we have a request. Would you do it in a river? And we say, A, the river's really cold. You don't actually want it in the river. But B, not as many people can go down on the banks of the river and watch this happen. And we want as many people as possible to see this. Because there's something unique about this symbol when we see it. And then we would say, once, once you have been baptized, then, then Jesus gives us another symbol which, which really corresponds to the Passover. And so there's this circumcision Passover thing, and now we have baptism and the Lord's table, which are very similar in their symbolic meaning. And Jesus actually said, during a Passover celebration is when he instituted the new covenant in his blood. Because it is no longer the killing of an innocent lamb whose blood goes on our doorposts. Instead, it's the killing of an innocent man who shed his blood on the cross. See the connection there? 
And so we, we, we celebrate that. We don't celebrate that Jesus had to die. We celebrate that he did die for us as a, as a way that he loved us. And that's why we have, we have bread that would symbolize his flesh, that he actually came to this earth. We believe that. And that he shed his blood in our place for our sins. We believe that. So we have something that would symbolize blood. And I would say this, that if you believe in Jesus enough to take the Lord's table, then you have enough information to get baptized. It's not a way to pressure people as much as to say the Bible commands it because every time that we are asked to have faith, we are asked to put our faith on the line and have that faith tested. And this is one of the public ways that we do it. And we want to make this accessible as possible. We don't require anyone to say any particular thing. We don't require classes. We even have swim trunks and t-shirts back there that if you today believe that that Jesus is calling you to this step of obedience and that you want to come and get baptized, uh, we actually have some dry clothes for you. But if you need some time to think about it, this is what we'd say. We're going to fill up the tub next week too so that you have the opportunity to think about this. And, And why would you do this, lastly? Why would you do this? I would say because just like the people of God needed a reminder of him going forward, just like Israel as they go into the land that they're going to conquer needed to be reminded by 12 stones, we need reminders of what Jesus has done. And this is a gift. When you get baptized every week, You can say, as you partake of the Lord's table, do I really believe this? Yes, I did. At one point, I did. I remember that. I remember what Jesus did in my life. I remember that. And that's why we actually say, when you come forward, this is an act of remembering. For those who already have been baptized, you love the Lord's table because it's a reminder. Hey, I'm, I'm in the family of God. I have a record of the grace of Jesus in my life. I know that. I experience that. It's real. And so when someone says, is Jesus Christ real? Can you prove it? You just say, well, it's, he's real for me. This is real for me. And so I'll call the band to, to come at this time. And let me again say, if you don't believe that here this morning, don't feel the pressure, or this evening, sorry. Don't feel the pressure to come forward. This table, this this tank is really for those who say, I'm going to put my, I'm going to make my faith public. I'm going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to identify with this church. I'm choosing to be part of this family locally and globally. But if you do not believe, friend, what, what, what's going to hold, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Jesus said, there is nothing that can separate you from my love. And do you know how he proved it? By this. He came for you. The Bible said he knew who you were before time even existed. And he was chasing you down and he was looking for you and he was wanting you to know that he loved you. And he wanted to do it so bad that he died for you. And so we want to just celebrate that together. So some of you, literally, you need to simply have a smile on your face as you come to take 
come to take the Lord's table and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my life. So I invite you to come as Julie leads and plays.